0: Tech talk Tech Talk with Jess Kelly This
1: is News Talk
2: Welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, the Director of Strategy at Meta will talk about the importance of data privacy and transparency. Three Ireland CTO will talk about their 5G speeds. And John Riley will have a full rundown on the many gaming titles that will be released over the coming weeks. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Um, on Thursday of this week, I I was chatting with Kieran Cudahy on the hard shoulder about the National Broadband Plan. Uh, National Broadband Ireland appeared before an Oireachtas committee to answer questions about the rollout of the plan, which has unfortunately been significantly delayed. Uh, if you're in the intervention area, you're waiting to see if you're going to be connected, you can head on over to nbi.ie and get a rough idea of when you'll be connected. But it looks like It'll be the end of 2026 before it is all completed. Um, I would love to hear from you if you are in the intervention area, what options are there for you until we get to that stage. Uh, You can email techtalk at newstalk.com. But there has been talk about potential solutions or stopgaps gaps or entire alternatives to fibre. And one of those is, of course, 5G. Uh, Just this week, Ookla, the global leader in broadband network intelligence, named 3Ireland as the fastest, most consistent 5G network in the country. David Hennessy is the CTO of 3Ireland and UK, and he joins me now. Uh, David it's great to talk to you yet again and uh, the reason we have you on uh, is because 3 has been named as Ireland's fastest and most consistent uh, 5G network by UCLA. Can you just explain uh, what that verification means to to your team uh, in particular at 3?
0: Well uh, firstly I guess we're really really happy and proud of of the results we got from the uh, the UCLA measurements. UCLA is an independent body uh, that have an app and they independently measured speed tests from, from customers. And in Ireland, they recorded over 50,000 uh, speed tests. And across the board, we, we came out fastest. So we're fastest overall network and the fastest 5G network, and significantly uh, ahead, ahead of our competitors in terms of the performance we're, we're achieving. So we're really, really happy with, uh, with the results we've, we've achieved.
2: In terms of 5G, I know we have spoken about it in the past. We've talked about it quite a lot here on News Talk. But I think others are, you know, maybe they're upgrading for the first time in 12, 18, maybe 24 months. And they're seeing 5G phones on the market. Um, for those who aren't overly familiar with the potential of 5G and the vision for 5G, can you just give us a bit of an introduction into what it is, how we got here and why it's an important uh, evolution in the connectivity journey?
0: Yeah, well, so 5G is is the fifth generation uh, mobile technology. Uh, What we've seen over the last number of years, as we've moved through the different generations, is the performance of the the network improves. And and that's all well and good to say, and and networks are faster and they can support more traffic. But in in a broader sense, uh, what we're seeing is connectivity and mobile connectivity, fixed connectivity is becoming more and more important. So, it's more ingrained to people's everyday lives, and uh, the dependence on on high quality connectivity is increasing. We're seeing more and more applications and more and more traffic going across the network. Whether it's basic applications like, um, you know, watching Netflix, or far more sophisticated applications like, say. Microsoft Teams or industrial applications, connectivity is becoming more and more important. And what 5G is, is really an evolution of of that connectivity, allowing the networks to support the levels of traffic and the types of services which, you know, general technology is, is, uh, is driving So what 5G does is it provides better, more reliable, faster uh, connectivity, and really opens the door for far more sophisticated services to sit on the networks.
2: as I've mentioned, we, we've spoken about this previously, and it's not as simple as just, you know, flicking a switch or plugging something in. This has been a significant investment of time and money over a period of time, and it's not done yet. Can you just give us a bit of insight into what has to be done to the or what has been done to the existing infrastructure to enable all of that connectivity you've just described?
0: Okay, so uh, it's, it's a brand new network. So that means it has to be deployed geographically across the entire country and all, all the sites need to be upgraded um it's a brand new core network that allows for far more ip-based um services we began uh the rollout of our 5g network about about three years ago and it's part of a of 700 million uh network investment that that we've we've undertaken and we're, we're you know currently investing about 100 uh, million per year so far we've we've gotten uh, up to 900 sites deployed about 60% of those are uh, Outside of the main cities and about 40% uh within the, the main cities, and that's giving us a 79% population coverage. I would say within the next you know month or so we'll be up to to 80% population coverage. So that's 80% um of, of, of the population that, that can achieve really, really high quality, high-speed uh, internet access uh just through their handsets. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the speed test results that came back. The median speed was um, well over three hundred megabits per second available to people in in their pockets. But if you look at the peak speeds, we're, we're regularly achieving like up to one and a half gigabits per second, which is is faster than an awful lot of uh, fibre. So so it is a radical change in in the type uh, the type of connectivity that that is that's available to businesses or consumers across the country. Uh, in terms of broadband, we're we're currently able to support high-speed broadband and a very, very viable fibre alternative broadband uh, solution to over a million houses. And we're we're really starting to see, you know, big demand and big, big uh, uptake on that.
2: Um, You mentioned there as well about uh, fibre and an alternative to to fibre. We heard earlier this week about uh, the status of the National Broadband Plan and National Broadband Ireland's rollout people are getting impatient, particularly over the last two years. We've seen such a reliance on connectivity and the need for consistent connection, which is one of the things that Ukla pointed out about your 5G connectivity. Do you see uh, and do you predict that more and more people will, you know, give up the weight for fibre to roll by their door and look at this as a real well, alternative?
0: It, yeah, and precisely because it is a real alternative, uh, the services there it's it's reliable um, and what we've seen is over the last you know number of months people are becoming more and more uh, aware of the 5G broadband product and I think initially people were, were perhaps skeptical of, of a mobile uh, a mobile based or a mobile based product Providing home broadband, but in actual fact, that's that's what it is. It is a home broadband product, and uh, as as pe- you know, as people uh, start using it, we're, we're seeing uh, an awful lot of uh, local uptake. So, where a number of people take it in a town, we find a lot of people take it in, in a town because uh, there's lots and lots of word of mouth and, and really uh, positive feedback from the users. So, I have no doubt that this is going to be it's going to be huge.
2: Another trend that I noticed, and this is just uh, word of mouth rather than me having any data to back it up. But during lockdown in particular, I know a number of friends and colleagues who had to go on uh, the three network using the all you can eat data and tethering to their devices because it provided that more consistent connection. And they didn't experience the same issues, I suppose, with the crowded network and so on. Is that something that you think we're going to see more and more of? Because people, they understand the technology a bit more and they understand the capabilities of the technology that bit more as well.
0: Oh, I I think without a doubt. Uh, uh, People are certainly a lot lot more tech savvy and the options that are available. Um, During the pandemic, there was a lot of... um, you know, a lot of demand, and we focused an awful lot on on providing uh, rural connectivity and really upgrading our our, our, our services outside outside of um, outside of the cities, and particularly and particularly in rural areas, which historically would have been underserved. Um, we're seeing huge usage coming out of those areas. So yes, I think I, I think it's something that's just going to grow and grow.
2: I was reading uh during the week that some well one network in particular in the UK is going to turn off um it's 3G uh, connectivity over the coming year or so is that something that Three Ireland is planning to do or will it maintain that
0: uh, uh, we're considering it we we'll, of course look at uh, technology keeps moving forward and we will turn off um turn off our 3G network at a point of time um as 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 we see a higher um, Prevalence of you know 4G and 5G uh, based handsets as we see the 5G coverage rolling out. I think traffic will naturally shift from from 3G to 3G to 4G and, and 5G. And at the right point in time, we will switch off our our 3G network. And it just means that we we have we'll have more spectrum that we can use within a 4G and 5G network and be using better technologies. But it's um, it's something that we'll do at the right point of time. You know. Mm-hmm maybe three years maybe four years
2: okay and um, you mentioned as well about how 5g required the the new build a, a network a new network to be built Um. in terms of future proofing and building on because this evolution isn't going to stop will the next iteration be able to be built on the 5g network or do you anticipate it being another massive rollout from a time and money point of view again
0: it's it's usually about every 10 years you see new generation of of technology so the focus for the, for the next you know 6 years 7 years will will be around uh around 5g um but what we will see is is 5g becoming much more uh, sophisticated as we go forward so so currently um 5G is is a thing called non-standalone 5G, which means it's integrated very heavily to the 4G network. In the future, 5G becomes standalone and becomes a configurable network, so 5G will really Become part of it will almost become like a, a public platform where people can create their own services and and use the network for for uh, far more um, advanced applications. So I think what we'll see is the network itself will just continue to roll out and strengthen, but the ability of of customers or businesses to build their own services on the five G network will will uh, evolve an awful lot over the over the next you know two or three years.
2: Yeah, the 5G technology is is often talked about as, you know, this magic key that could unlock so many different potential opportunities with technology, whether that is autonomous vehicles, whether that is remote surgeries being carried out by robots in different parts of the world and so on. It seems almost that we're still a while away from fully getting the impact of 5G. Uh, Someone text into the park, Kenny. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry
0: yeah uh, just on that. so so what we're seeing so in order to support all those things like say autonomous uh, vehicles or remote surgery you've you've got different requirements on the networks so you've got to do two things so firstly you have to be able to have a really strong network and roll out a really reliable really really dense network which is 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 what we're focusing on now on top of that you, you have to be able to look at each application and say, what do I want from the network? So for autonomous vehicles you want really, really low latency in the network and ultra reliable uh, connectivity in the network. So the network needs to be able, or needs to be configurable to support that particular application for that user. For for remote surgery, you probably just need really, really reliable uh, connectivity um very very high bandwidth so again the network needs to be configurable for that particular application or for say smart cities you need huge connection densities but not necessarily very very high bandwidth so when i spoke earlier about moving standalone 5g really that's what it's about it's allowing uh the network to be configured for each and every application Uh, But it can only really work when you have a very, very strong network. So that's why we're so focused on getting the radio network to to a really strong place that will allow these services to be configured on the network.
2: Uh, My final question is uh, about consumer devices, right? So a text came into the Pat Kenny show on Tuesday. Somebody asking, uh, there were two phone options available to them. Uh, They were due an upgrade. One had 5G, one didn't have 5G. Are we at the point now where 5G should be a key consideration when you're buying a phone, keeping in mind that, you know, the average person only changes their phone every few years rather than every few months?
0: Uh, uh, 100%. I think just like 5G is so vastly superior in terms of performance that uh, my personal recommendation would be always go for the 5G option.
2: Brilliant stuff. Well, there you have it. Uh, straight from the CTO of Three Ireland and the UK. Uh, David, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Talk. Thank you,
0: Jess.
2: Coming up next, the Director of Data Strategy at Meta.
0: Tech Talk with Jess Kelly.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk. Uh, as ever, you can email us if you so wish. Uh, techtalk at newstalk.com is the email address or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Over the coming weeks, we are going to have plenty of new devices to talk through. Uh, We will bring you reviews, of course, every Tuesday on The Pat Kenny Show. One release um, that caught my attention this week, unfortunately, is not available in Ireland, but Huawei unveiled the P50 Pocket. Uh, So if you've been following Huawei's story over the last number of years, you'll know that the P range is their flagship range. It's essentially their S range. So instead of the S21 or 22 they have the P30, 40, 50, and so on. Uh, So the P50 Pocket is a foldable phone that fits in your pocket that's the name Uh, it looks not a million miles away from the samsung galaxy z fold 3 that we saw earlier this or late last year um and it 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 definitely piqued my interest but unfortunately there's no release date for ireland as of yet but the second there is uh, i will get my little pause on one and we will bring you that full review uh, as i said on the pat kenny show But as you may or may not know, Friday the 28th of January was Data Privacy Day. And obviously, there was a lot of talk about the importance of data privacy and protection. But Meta announced the investment of €500,000 to Irish institutions for research and data privacy protection. Dan Hayden is the Director of Strategy at Meta and he joins me now. Dan, you're very welcome to Tech Talk Can you just start by explaining a little bit about what exactly your job entails?
3: Sure, Um, so so I've been at Meta for five years um, and I co-lead a team called uh, TTC Labs. It's an unusual team. And what it's really focused on is how do we like better design the experience people have of their kind of privacy and data. And it spans across our team based here in Dublin, uh, teams in California and in Seattle. And it's a mix of uh, kind of policy and design folks. And the idea is to kind of bring those groups together, uh, work with outside experts. Uh, We publish uh, reports, insights, design guides, especially on our website, which you can access online. Um, And and kind of the practice is focused on co-design. How do we work with the outside world? How can we build better experiences? How do we kind of innovate to provide the best experience for people around data and privacy uh, uh, online?
2: There's been a huge amount of uh, work done in this space within Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook, for those of you who don't know, uh, but also across tech as a whole. And in the five years that you've been there, it must have been fascinating to identify issues where they were, but also the consumer appetite for better transparency around their privacy settings and more control over it as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like, as I reflect on my time here, uh, I see this sea change, not just at Meta, but also across the whole industry. And, and sometimes it can be uncomfortable. Like we're held to account. Uh, folks have been frustrated sometimes with with, uh, with with the kind of tech industry and how it's kind of kept up to speed with those norms as technology has evolved quickly. But I think the great thing as well is to see the kind of measures and mechanisms maturing, seeing the company get better and better, seeing new technologies evolve, seeing better mechanisms to give people kind of controls and transparency in their online experiences. And, you know, there's lots of things you'd reflect on and say, man, I wish we'd known that earlier. You know, we should have thought of that before. But but I think that's, that's part of the nature of being at the kind of forefront of technology is that there is that, um, that kind of process of innovation that kind of sometimes lags behind different technologies. And then sometimes we try to work to get ahead of it as possible. But I, I see a uh, huge change. And also, I think for the for the companies, it's good to be held accountable, right? It's good to have uh, consumers saying, this is what we want from you. These are the expectations we have. Uh, this is what we want you to do to to do better.
2: Yeah. And look, I, I don't think. Um... We can sort of avoid the fact that there has been controversy along the way. There's been speed bumps along the way. But a lot of the reason for that, as I understand it, is because this technology evolved very, very quickly. We embraced it at breakneck speed. And all of a sudden, issues arose as more users interacted with it. And it's taken a while, uh, and it's still taking a while, for legislation to catch up. But we, of course, here in Ireland, have my beloved GDPR, obviously across Europe as well. Did GDPR provide challenges or would you look at them as opportunities from Meta's point of view in terms of data protection policies?
3: So so, so I, I think I think what's great with GDPR, one is that you see this European regulation really kind of setting the global bar around the world for like, how do you actually realize the best of people's rights around data and their privacy? Um, and, and through that, it offers a blueprint, right? It, it offers a blueprint through principles. But I think there's also still lots of work to do to say how do we best realize that in like the mobile experiences you have, the interfaces we design um, and, and I think lots of businesses would look at it and say, hey that's a journey you know from very small businesses probably grappling with the scale of that regulation and how to do it. I think at Meta like, we have a, you know a lot of scale, a lot of capacity lots of folks working on those, on those problems. so that's not the, the challenge that we face as much. It's more about saying how do we kind of reconcile new technologies, new experiences with law? Uh, and, and some of that comes with kind of how do you make the kind of the legal can, uh, kind of standards uh, uh, kind of real for people in the online experiences, right in the constraints of a mobile screen how do you provide the best kind of level of, of transparency of clarity how do you avoid using language that's too complex how do you make sure that the controls that people have you know appear in the right place and um, that they're relevant to what their interests are that they understand the requests of them and that's exactly the set of questions that my team is focused on kind of spanning across the kind of policy and design space. Because ultimately, a lot of it comes down to to interfaces. You know, it comes down to how uh, the experiences you have um, are reflected in the devices you use, whether that's your mobile phone uh, or, or, or a laptop or whatever.
2: Again, as someone who kind of talks about and often criticizes a lot of the work that goes on in this space, I have to hand it to, uh, I assume your team at Meta, that over the last number of years, the, the finding of privacy settings and the ability to change privacy settings and also understand what settings you have control over, it has been a massive change to how it once was. I could now, and I have on air, you know, from memory, talk through where you could find the privacy section, how you can do your checkup online to see who can see your content and so on. Is that something that's constantly being worked on as, you know, different platforms come in as different small changes happen to the platform? Are you constantly having those conversations about how can users find the settings that they need access to?
3: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of it is like, how do we build new controls that offer new levels of control for different uh, for different people who have different kinds of uh, goals that they're trying to achieve, even as to build new products? And I, I think you're right. Like we've seen so many new features and experiences launched about, you know, how do you understand um, uh, how you're being served a particular post, or or you know, what, why an ad is is, is directed towards you, and offering people like transparency and control around those things is so so important. And they also represent kind of innovations in the space. Um, but I think what you've described as well is like that journey will never stop right you, you you create more controls and more transparency you've got to think about how to make them accessible to people um help ensure that you know whether you're somebody who's um maybe newer to those technologies or maybe you're a little bit older you're not kind of like a digital native as such that they're accessible and clear to you just as they would be for for someone who uses them every day like like maybe you might just um and i i think that 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 process will continue right there's always further to go but i think i think we can also stand to say a lot of progress has been made Mm. Um, and that's both on the kind of the user facing side but also in the background all of the kind of like the, the, the standards and controls inside a company to manage like a privacy by design process to ensure that every single product every single feature innovation goes through a process to make sure that it's designed in the best possible way that it meets all the standards of like what can be a very complex kind of policy and regulatory environment outside.
2: We, again, need to acknowledge some of the conversations that have been happening in the last you know, 12 to 18 months are around social media as a whole. Um, there's constant talk about need for regulation and so on. Do you think that that, that that conversation, although it can be uncomfortable at times, is to be welcomed? Because if there is more transparency, then there's greater trust. And I think trust is something that, is very, very important, particularly as companies like Meta continue to ingrain themselves in different aspects of our lives and in different ways with talk of the metaverse and so on.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Meta has been very clear, actually, on saying like, we need clear standards and regulations in these spaces. And I I think the challenge, actually, and, and this is held in common across industry, across civil society, across academia, across policymakers is how do you how do you make those work in the best possible way? Because they're very complex spaces. And, and sometimes laws are great at saying like, here are the constraints, here are the standards, here's what you should work towards. Um, and sometimes similarly, there's ambiguity that creates sometimes useful flexibility, that also sometimes creates a lack of clarity for, for companies. So I, I think like, you know, we've been very clear uh, uh, on the need for regulation, on the need for, to make sure that regulation works but there's also some like quite complex tensions at the heart of that, whether that's around kind of content is regulated online or how you find the right lines and how you communicate. Like for instance, communicating about data transparency as a value, so important, it's a real focus for my team, but how do you balance like the depth and complexity of that with accessibility for different audiences? You know, what, what reading level do you target? How much time do you want to spend? How do you find the right balance of those things? And, and we kind of discover that a lot of the time through experimentation, through research, uh, and my team's been sharing um, a range of privacy research with industry across on on our on our website, trying to share that across industry. And I think those approaches are like really, really valuable. and we generally need more dialogue right about saying what are the actual parameters here, what do we optimize for? what are the right kind of balances to make as we seek to realize that. but we're we're unequivocal. like the, the internet needs better regulation for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, we are up against the clock, unfortunately, because I could talk to you for days. Um, but I want to mention um, that Meta has invested half a million euro into research on data privacy protection. Can you just tell me a little bit about that investment and also why a company on the scale and size of Meta um, continues to do that, particularly on the ground here in Ireland?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, so this is part of like a much wider program around around the world of, of uh of RFPs for, for privacy technology research. I think mean, the most recent one was, was 2 million, but um, specifically our team in Dublin um, has just committed uh, 500,000 toward the SFI Empower project, which, which is spanning across two projects in the UCC Insight Centre and the TCD ADAPT research centres. And there's, there's two kind of specific projects that we're funding Um, that are driven by those academics and those institutions. Um, The first is around kind of creating an AI uh, catalog for data governance. So helping to kind of make standardized terms and content to to help organizations build better governance for AI. Um, And the second one is focused on privacy enhancing technologies. Uh, And those are technologies and tools uh, to build better anonymization for for data. And and, and that can be across civil society organizations, a range of companies across governance. Uh, th- these are foundational technologies and foundational research. Um, and I think we're, we're just really invested in, like one one Dublin is our EMEA HQ, su- super important place. Uh, I and my team are based here. Um, and we really want to support that kind of innovation and the expertise that exists in Irish institutions, just as we have in California with the nearby universities there, is to help build that center of excellence. And uh, what SFI have done in building this Empower project, I think is really, really impressive. It's a credit to them. Uh, we've been involved from the very start along with a number of other companies. Um, and I think we're hoping to see like more and more funding for foundational research in these in these privacy areas in future.
2: Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I really do appreciate your time. Uh, hopefully you'll come back and talk to us again at another stage where we can maybe delve into some of these issues a bit deeper. Uh, but for the moment, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk.
3: Thanks, Jess. It's a pleasure.
2: Coming up next, John Riley on the biggest gaming titles that are on the way. Over the next few weeks.
0: Tech Talk with Jess Kelly.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at newstalk.com is the email address as ever if you want to get in touch, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Uh, we are gonna talk about all things gaming now because there is plenty going on. Although uh, we're still in January, there has been plenty of news in the last two weeks alone. Uh, and John Riley, the editor of the effect.net, is with us once again. John, how are you?
1: Really good, Jess. How are you?
2: I'm good. Um, Let's start off with one of the stories that sort of dominated not just gaming headlines, but tech headlines uh, over the last number of weeks. And it involves uh, Microsoft and almost $70 billion.
1: Yeah, this is one of the biggest kind of gaming announcements and just general tech mergers, acquisition news uh, to come out in a long time, actually. So, earlier this month in on January 18th Microsoft officially announced that they were looking to acquire Activision Blizzard so that you know for 68.7 billion dollars this is the biggest kind of um, acquisition in gaming history uh, so it's a, it's a big big deal um so they're going to be you know it's it's not it's not officially closed just yet as a deal or as a contract or it's looking to kind of be confirmed by the end of 2023 next year. But things are obviously already in motion to kind of just get, get the actual deal over the line. But this is huge for gaming and kind of what, what, what the repercussions are going to be are, are still being uh, decided upon as we speak.
2: So for those who don't know, will you just explain, and I, I keep saying this wrong, but can you just explain um, Activision Activision Blizzard, um, explain what that is and why it's worth almost £70 billion?
1: Yeah, so Activision Blizzard would, would be one of the biggest third-party developers. So basically, prior to this deal, they were, um, weren't were owned by any of the big players like Sony, like Microsoft or Nintendo. So they would make titles that would be across all of those those platforms and for PC as well. So what this deal means, you know, some of those titles actually, just so your listeners know, would be like Call of Duty, which is, you know, one of the biggest first-person shooters in the world. For the PC gamers out there, you've got World of Warcraft, you've got Diablo, and you've got Overwatch, which is a really popular first-person shooter as well on PC. So Microsoft acquiring this studio will give them kind of access to all of these huge kind of IPs or intellectual properties to, to kind of capitalize on their own platforms be it on the xbox consoles or even then obviously on pc as well which microsoft have a kind of a a strong playing in as well so it's really to kind of bolster out their their own first party studios so technically this third this what was a third party studio is now becoming a first party studio or or kind of company for the microsoft brand or for the xbox brand and they will then be making games uh, under the xbox kind of banner like, like we've seen with the likes of Forza Horizon 5's developer uh, Playground Games. And they also bought, way back in the day, they bought Mojang, which your listeners will know more of the, as the developers of Minecraft. So again, that's a Microsoft company. So this is all just to, to really pad out what they can offer their first party um, or to offer their gamers that are kind of signed up to their Game Pass subscription. Um, so there's a lot of kind of moving parts, but it really is to bolster this subscription service they set up a good number of years ago now and they've officially announced has 25 million subscribers globally.
2: Yeah, and so for anyone who may not be familiar with all of this, even just hearing the amount of money that's at stake here should emphasize why this is so important and how big a deal is this. But the question I have, John, is, is it good news for the gamer? You know, will gamers lose out anything by the Microsoft acquisition of this company?
1: see that's kind of still the conversation that's happening a lot online yet uh you know as i said things are still being ironed out you know the contract isn't going to close till the end of next year or the deal isn't going to go through potentially till the end of next year but you know one of the biggest bones of contention for for, for listeners could be the, the fact that call of duty you know a, a game that's been famous across uh, the likes of playstation and xbox mainly playstation really it kind of got its it got its real strength and its real kind of followers um throughout the years but now you know, Microsoft have come out to say, look, at they will honour kind of existing contracts to make sure that Call of Duty will be on PlayStation consoles until the end of next year. But really, after that, we do—it's anyone's guess. You know, and you know, if it's to be believed that Microsoft are spending nearly 70 billion dollars to own these brands, it'd be surprising if they were to keep them on competing competing devices. So, mm. you know, PlayStation gamers might be left in the cold. Come 2024, you know, further into the future, you know, Call of Duty fans on PlayStation might have to, you know, pitch, you know, take their wallet out again and buy an Xbox console or pay for this Xbox uh, Game Pass service to play the latest Call of Duty. But it's still early days yet to see exactly will that happen.
2: Yeah, it's definitely one that we will keep an eye on and uh, update you as I'm sure there will be many twists and turns along the road. Um, Another news story that I rolled my eyes at, but I know that you're very excited about, is the uh, PSVR, so PlayStation's uh, virtual reality headset. We're getting another one.
1: Yes. So, you know, it was officially uh, kind of teased and drip fed last year. So we got a look at the controllers. We got a we got a bit more information about you know what they're looking to do with the headset, but at CES in uh, well the virtual CES more so well there was a physical one in Las Vegas earlier this month. Uh, Sony took to the stage and kind of gave us more information about their upcoming virtual reality headset. So this is basically going to be called PlayStation VR two, a successor to the twenty sixteen VR headset which they brought out and was kind of popular in its own circles and had some really standout titles. But as as the as its lifespan went on, it kind of waned in in the quality of titles and even just the number of titles available on the headset so now we're in 2022 we've got the official name we've got you know a a lot more specs about what the headset is going to be doing when it launches for the playstation 5 exclusively later this year you know it's rumored to still be coming later this year but we've seen not only games but devices in general being uh, delayed due to the chip shortages but you know this thing is going to be one of the most Um, promising or one of the most um, impressive virtual reality headsets to hit the market ever really it's going to have some incredible tech packed in and uh, iPhone I know you're not mad on the virtual reality Mm -hmm. space but I'm really really excited for this headset because from what they've announced it sounds like it's going to be truly incredible in terms of immersion levels
2: it does all depend on the titles though doesn't it because I think the game that we tried if memory serves was a Batman game um, yep. And it was incredible. But after about 15 minutes, I kind of got bored with it. It's a bit disorientating. I, I'm not the biggest fan of VR. I know that that will have to change over time. But um, do we have any indication as to what they're going to do with it? Because I'm sure the gamer expectation is, has increased since 2016. Like we've all seen aspects of virtual reality. So the experience will have to have leveled up quite a bit.
1: Yeah and I, as I, like as I said they're definitely going to they know they have to up the game and you know from from the specs that they've announced for this new headset something as as advanced as eye tracking so this basically means there will be cameras inside the headset tracking your eyes to see where you're looking at the screen in in the device so it'll actually give you the sharpest image possible and you can use your eyes then to actually interact with the world so if you look at an item on a table in a virtual world with this new headset you could potentially pick it up by just looking at it so this all sounds incredibly futuristic and it is because i there hasn't really been any games showcased that uses this tech yet Mm. so you know i'm really excited for that and it put like to your point this does have incredible specs but if, you know if the titles aren't there it's just going to be a dust collector in the corner so at CES as well when they announced all of this cool you know amazing new tech coming to the headset they did announce a brand new title called Horizon Call of the Mountains so your listeners that are PlayStation gamers will be aware of the Horizon franchise which originally launched on the PS4 back in 2017 it was called Horizon uh, uh, 0 Dawn so this is going to be a virtual reality title tied in that universe and um, kind of a post post-apocalyptic world. You know, these giant robot uh, animals and di- like almost like dinosaurs, but robotic dinosaurs will be in this virtual environment. And, you know, this really will push the PlayStation 5 to its limit, along with the. incredible specs that we're going to have in this headset so we got about a 15 second snippet you know a teaser of a teaser basically showing us the visuals and even that kind of showcased just how advanced the visuals are going to be over what people are probably used to with the old playstation headset and just other non you know powerful headsets that you know the likes of the quest which is one of the most popular you know facebook's quest headset being one of the most popular VR headsets in the world right now but this playstation VR two that'll kinda of connect directly up to your PS5 via just one cable, which is mm-hmm. really good. Whereas the, the you know, the last PSVR headset was a bit of a pain in the in the proverbial uh, when trying to connect it up to your console this is just one single cable so it'll be a lot easier and pain free for people wanting to connect it up and get the best experience
2: Yeah that was one of the things that I was super excited about was just that it looked a good bit neater and as I said less of a pain in the face to set up because there were mountains and uh, mountains of cables involved in hooking it up last time that'll also make for a better gaming experience as well if you don't feel like you have the weight of the world and like octopus tentacles coming out of your head uh, to play a game so I'm excited I'm excited Excited to see it in action. That's that's yeah. how I will say. We will we'll reserve judgment until uh, we actually get it. Um, let's just run through some of the gaming titles that we're getting over the next few months. Uh, kicking off with a Pokemon game for the Switch.
1: Yeah, so uh, like, uh, you know, usually Januarys are quite quiet when, when in terms of games launching because the Christmas period is over. But I think delays may have impacted the, the kind of the lineup that we're seeing now for January, February and March. So coming basically the 28th of January, we've got uh, uh, the, the new Pokemon game, Acreus. So I hope I'm pr- pronouncing that correctly. It's, I think a lot of people have a difficulty, but it's basically, it's called Pokemon Legends Acreus. It's launching exclusively on the Nintendo Switch and kind of Pokemon fans out there from, from, its, from its heyday back in 1990s. This is probably the first real open world Pokemon game where you can kind of wander around like your know, imagination used to when you play the old Game Boy games. This was actually like a, a, where you can go out hunting across mountains and deserts and jungles, um, as I said, on the Switch. And, you know, it's getting rave reviews already. And, you know, true Pokemon fans are saying it's really the shake up the, the, the franchise needed. So it's, it's, it looks like it's going to be a huge success on the console like any other Pokemon game is.
2: OK, next we have a PS5 game uh, which you've reviewed up on TheEffect.net, Uncharted uh, Legacy of Thieves, Thieves Collection.
1: Yes, yeah, so this also launches on January twenty eighth. This is uh, for the PlayStation Five exclusively, and it, what it is is from Naughty Dog, one of the best developers for this for the for the platform or for PlayStation, have remastered two of their most popular titles. So you've got Uncharted Four, a Thieves' End from twenty sixteen, and then Uncharted: The Lost Legacy from 2017, which kind of like was a, a large bit of uh, an expansion to that uh, first title. So what they've done is remastered both these titles and put them into a, a kind of a collection, a legacy of Thieves collection for the PlayStation 5, utilizing like the, the sheer horsepower of the new console to kind of, Get, you can get 4K quality resolution, or you can up the 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 frame rate to 60 frames per second, or if you want, you can go all the way up to 120 frames per second on you know if your TV is capable of doing that. You know, originally these games were standout in terms of their visuals and their storytelling. It was like a triple A blockbuster title playing on your PlayStation console. So now on the PS5 they look even better and as i said as you mentioned the our full review is on the site for anyone that's interested to seeing how it, how it, how it stands on the on the new console and you know the timing is very good sony know what they're doing um because if anyone knows tom holland's next movie spider-man tom holland his next movie is coming out on the 11th of february so about two weeks time it's uncharted is is the title and it's based on these collection of games or, or basically this game, you know, there's been Uncharted 1, 2 and 3 and then obviously Uncharted 4 now. So it's a good timing to kind of promote the movie and to promote the game as well.
2: They are clever, those Sony execs. <laughs> um, next up, we have a game that you mentioned a few minutes ago, the Horizon Forbidden West on PS5 and PS4. Yes,
1: yeah, so this is actually in the same world. So there is a PSVR title coming to the new headset called Horizon Call of the Mountains, which is set in the same world as this title, but Horizon Forbidden West will be a, um, a, a, a game we can all play this February 18th on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. So, you know, if your listeners haven't seen what this looks like yet, I, I really say, I really recommend they go online and have a look. At Horizon Forbidden West and see the visuals, just to see how incredibly visually striking this title is. It's a sequel to 2017's hugely popular game, as I mentioned, Horizon Zero Dawn. So Forbidden West will take you kind of to the west coast of America in a post-apocalyptic post world where everything's dilapidated and overtaken by nature, but there is these robotic animals and creatures roaming the world that you must fend or fight off. Um, it's gonna be one of the standout titles for, for the PlayStation 5 and 4 this year. And, you know, I think PlayStation are off to a good start with something as, as powerful as this or as, as visually striking and impressive as this launching on February 18th.
2: Brilliant stuff. Uh, we have two more, Elden Ring, which is available across the board uh, out on February 25th.
1: Yeah, so, you know, Elden Ring is one of the most hotly anticipated games of the year and as you said it's available on PS5 the new Xbox consoles PS4 the old Xbox one and the PC so this is from a developer called from software and these guys make some of the most difficult most most you know difficult games really out there you know unforgiving games in terms of their difficulty level. So you have Bloodborne and Dark Souls, you know, these are games that people just love because they're just so hard to kind of to win or to, to defeat the enemies in. So now Elden Ring is coming on February 25th, and this is kind of an open world version of what they've been what fans have been used to with Dark Souls and with Bloodborne. So the anticipation is off the charts for this, and early kind of previews of the title are saying it really is going to be a, um, a standout title again for this year. So it's definitely one listener should be aware of.
2: Awesome. And then the final one on your list for now is one that I'm actually really excited about, but it's not out until March 4th. It's Gran Turismo 7.
1: Yeah, so as I said, you know, PlayStation are off to a strong start this year with, with Horizon coming out in February and then one of their next kind of tentpole titles as Gran Turismo 7 on March 4th, as you said. So that's coming both to the PS4 and to the ps 5s so That's, you know, fans or owners of the the older console generation are going, are going to be left out in the dark. So, you know, anyone that knows Gran Turismo or PlayStation in general knows it's one of the most popular racing games of all time. And finally, we've got the seventh iteration making its way to these consoles. And if you're lucky enough to have a PS5, you're going to be getting 4K 60 frames per second gameplay with stunningly realized cars. You know, this game is, has been lauded throughout the years, throughout the decades for its attention to detail. And no surprise, this new title is going to be just as impressive. It's going to be visually stunning and really a car lover's dream um, once once it launches in March.
2: Okay, well look, that is great stuff. Plenty to keep us busy over the next few months. Um, of course, you'll be able to read all the reviews up on theeffect.net. John Riley, editor of that website. Thank you as always for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, Jess. All right, that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast on Monday morning. John Friday's up next here on News Talk with Screen Time.